Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we will be looking at Genesis 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. So today we've already looked at faith demonstrated in verse 20 with the uh, the naming of Eve. And then we looked at the supernatural covering where God made them garments. And we looked at the theological implications of that in verse 21. And now in verses 22 to 24, we see the concept of supernatural compassion, supernatural compassion. Uh, the first thing that we see here in verse 22 is this statement and really what we see in this with the use of the plural pronouns here is what has been referred to as the divine council. This is like the council of the triunity of the triune Godhead. And we, we see this, we see the singularity of God. The Lord God said, behold, man has become like one of us. And so we see this, there's this consultation that seems to take place within the triunity. And we see this, first of all, as, as God is discussing this and making this statement, that the knowledge of good and evil eating of that tree allowed them access to knowledge that they didn't know how to understand or adequately handle, right? Uh, the knowledge of good and evil isn't sin in of itself, but how they responded when they had knowledge uh, of those things, they failed the test, clearly. But there were two important trees in the garden, uh, and we'll get to the other one here in just a second. But the fact that their eyes were opened and now they had transgressed God's standard and fallen short and the curse has been pronounced, something needs to be done. And when we look into this, the expulsion from the garden, we really see that this is an act of supernatural compassion. This is an act of mercy. Now man knows good and evil, and he's going to choose evil. But God goes on to say, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he knows because of his omniscience what would happen if they stayed in the garden. As wonderful as the garden might be, even if it grew thistles and, and other things like that, the garden was still probably preferable than any place on earth to be. And in that garden located there is the tree of life. Now, the tree of life is not just talking about us living. It's talking about living eternally. And uh, we, we understand that. There, there are different ways that it's used in Scripture. But here, the Lord God says uh, 
that if he were to eat of the tree of life, he would live forever. Now, we have to stop right here and understand the theological implication. If he allows Adam and Eve to stay in the garden and they eat of that tree, they will live forever, just like Satan, right? Uh, And they will live forever locked into a state of, of enmity with God. Uh, they will be in a state of rebellion, but they will. There will be no chance at redemption, and that's the really important thing to understand. We we know parsing this and getting down to the nitty gritty here. We know there is one sense in which we can say all people, all all of mankind, will live forever. Yes, we understand that everybody will be resurrected, and and they will either be resurrected unto life, granted, uh, be clothed with immortality. And given a body that will not die, they will either be resurrected to life or they will be resurrected to death. That everybody on earth is going to be resurrected. That is absolutely ironclad. There are no exceptions. No one gets to be annihilated. You don't just cease from being. In fact, the moment that one dies, uh, you will you will go into a place, uh, it seems like, of holding until all things come together. Although... God's timetable is very different. I think that the amount of time that one is in that is probably uh, almost incalculable until you get to the final, the final place, right? And we see this with the account of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus gives, and that's clearly not a parable. It doesn't bear the characteristics of a parable, but the rich man dies and he is in a place of torment, and there's a great inseparable chasm between him and Lazarus, this beggar, who is enjoying what is the scripture calls Abraham's bosom, and he understands that he is in absolute torment, and he just longs for a single drop of water, and being denied that, he says, well, can you at least send somebody back from the dead to tell my brother so they don't have to suffer my same fate? And we remember that. So as soon as he dies, he's in a place of torment. As soon as Lazarus the beggar dies, he's in a place of of paradise, of joy and peace. And so we have to understand that, that that's where we go. And all of that is predicated on the decision that you make here on earth. Now, we know theologically that you are not even able to make the right decision unless God opens your eyes, but... God is the one who is merciful and compassionate, and he's full of grace and mercy, and he delights to do that. He delights to save uh, many people, and if it, were not a part, if it were not for his intervention, no one would be saved, and we also have to understand that before you start casting you know, doubt and aspersions on the, on the character of God and saying, why doesn't he do more? And I would do more if I was God. I would save everybody. I'd just wipe the slate clean. No, he's also a God of justice and and he's also a God of wrath. And, and so all of these things. And the fact of the matter is God made the perfect solution and you could not improve upon it. And the perfect solution was that Jesus came to earth, took on the form of sinful man, although he himself was without sin. And he took in his body the very wrath of God that was meant for you and me. And so somebody has to bear that wrath and you can, you can bear the wrath for eternity or Jesus already bore it. And you can believe in Jesus as the son of God, the one who bore your sins in his body on the cross and who satisfied the wrath of God for sin 
And he took that away. That's what it means to be propitiate, you know, propitiatory, uh, propitiatory there. Uh, a propitiation is a wrath bearer. He becomes the wrath bearer for our sin. And the, the whole point with that is that he takes it away. And so we, if we place our faith in him, God's wrath is still satiated. We didn't have to satiate it, but Jesus did it on our behalf. And that's why some are saved. But the decision has to be made in this life. Of course, of course, once you take your last breath and your next blink, your next breath, whatever is in the eternal state, and you recognize that Jesus is, in fact, Lord of all, the creator of the universe who upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Once you recognize that, you would instantly bow the knee. And, of course, we recognize from Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know that. But after you die... It's too late to obtain salvation. Yes, you will acknowledge Jesus is Lord. That's for sure. That's 100%. But you will not be able to be saved. So when God makes this statement in this divine uh, counsel here, when he makes this statement, really what he's showing is he wants us to understand that this is an, an act of compassion. And surely it was painful. Okay, sending somebody out into a harsh environment where you know they're going to meet trial and tribulation, that's no fun at all. As now I have several children of my own, the idea of sending them into something that would cause them pain is, you know, not something that I would relish. Okay, but sometimes we have to watch our kids do painful things, and sometimes we have to uh, understand that they will go through pain and, and it's okay. We do what we can, and sometimes. Enduring pain is for the best. And so here's where we make the argument that God is actually being incredibly merciful. When he knows that if they eat of the tree, they will lock in their fate forever, he must, by necessity, drive them out of the garden so that they don't live forever and lock it in and fail to have a shot at redemption. See, that's what's at stake here. If they were to reach out their hand and eat of the tree of life, they would not be able to obtain redemption through Jesus Christ in the future or the promise of Jesus for all those who are saved before Jesus comes, right? It's in the promise of his coming. And so it really is an actual act of his mercy. Now, let's back up for a second because the things that we know of God are we, we talk about his attributes and some of his attributes are communicable. In other words, that we can share in those things and participate in them to some degree, not to the degree that God has them who possesses them fully. Some of the things that God does, he possesses his attributes are incommunicable. He doesn't share them with us at all. For instance, omnipresence and omnipotence and, and, and those omnis. Okay. But mercy. Yeah, we can show mercy. We can withhold that which is due from somebody. We can do that to a certain degree, but this is certainly an attribute of God is his mercy. And so we see that he cannot go against himself. And so because he is driven by his own character, by his mercy, he must of necessity send them out of the garden. And so 
when he makes this reasonable argument and it's now recorded for us, you know, did we have to, to, to be privy to this conversation? Well, no, but it really helps us to understand his nature, his character. And so when he says this, then the scripture says in verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden. Now, before we get to the purpose there, we have to understand the strong language here. This, this verb for sending out, sent him out of the garden of Eden, it could be translated, it's a very strong verb, which means to drive out, to force out, to expel. And so, you know, you have to understand it wasn't just like a, hey, you know, you've got 15 minutes here, or a couple hours, let's get ready to go. No, it's like, okay, I see what's going to happen. You're gone. Uh, there's just no time here. You've got to get out, move. And it's a very forceful pushing them. It's a very forceful ejection from the garden. So he sends them out of the garden of Eden. And now here's the purpose to work the ground from which he was taken. Now it's not obviously the same plot of ground. It seems that if he's there in the garden, that God took him from the ground that was probably located in the garden. That's inconsequential. That's not important necessarily, but what is of note is that he is now out of the garden. But what's also of note is that he is still to fulfill the mandate. He is to uh, multiply. He is to increase. He is to fill the earth. He is to subdue it. He is to work even under the curse that was just pronounced on him in the preceding verses, knowing that he's going to have to bring things out of the ground by the sweat of his brow and in pain, And now here is his new location to do that. Uh, He sent him out to work the ground from which he was taken. Now in verse 24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, uh, cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Now this is, I will admit there is an element of mystery in this, but it's pretty fascinating because this probably by all record uh, or by all logical conclusion here persisted in the world until the flood came. Now, do we know where the Garden of Eden is specifically? Well, no, we don't. Uh, you know, we, we know generally where it was, and it's probably in one of the most arid regions on earth, the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia, I- Iran, uh, Iraq, and that area. Because we know that the Tigris River, which is something that the people of Israel would know when Moses gives them that, and the Euphrates River, those are rivers that they would have been accustomed to in that land. And we discussed that a little bit, Uh, even though a couple of the other rivers they didn't know, maybe those were there back in the days of, of Moses and the Exodus. So he gives them a little bit of frame of reference of where it is. But by the time Moses and the Israelites come onto the scene in preparation for the Exodus, the, the, the flood of Genesis 6 has long since passed. So for them, the rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates are just reference points, and probably the world is much as it is today, very arid and just desert and inhabit, uninhabitable and inhospitable. But it seems that no one was granted access to the garden, and it seems also the only way to get in was through this east uh, 
this gate really uh, to the east of the Garden of Eden. Uh, maybe it's not a gate. Maybe it's just a large a access here. But here it's guarded by an angel who's tasked with one mission and one mission alone, which is don't let anybody in. And so he has a flaming sword that turns every way to guard the tree of life. No one is going to eat of the tree of life, not, not one person. Uh, and, and that's probably more indicative of where in the garden the tree of life is so that, you know, he can guard that. There's all sorts of things that we can, you know, inferences necessarily that we can't be dogmatic on, but we can make some logical conclusions. But the overall point of all of this is that it truly is an act of supernatural compassion. This is the compassion and the mercy of the Lord being demonstrated here because death is already pronounced. You know, part of the curse to Adam, it says, you're going to return to the dust of the ground from whence you came, dust to dust. And we cover that. So he has to die. If he doesn't die, he can't be redeemed. And and now that has come upon all mankind. It's appointed a man wants to die after this, the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And we rarely stop and think about why that is necessary. Why couldn't God just translate us into heaven? Well, there's a picture, there's a prototype. Now, it's there's rare exceptions, right? You have Enoch was not because God took him uh, at 365 years of age, Genesis 5. We'll come to that in a couple chapters. Uh, you have Elijah, who is taken up in heaven on flaming chariots, you know, chariots of fire. Uh, and so we understand that. And, and there's a case to be made that they're going to return and actually suffer bodily uh, death as perhaps the two uh, prophets of the end times. Uh, but, you know, that's, that's speculation. We don't know that for sure. God can obviously do miracles and has done miracles. But for the most part, when we understand death, not only should we understand its theological implications because of sin, but we have to understand why Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. It was so that they could experience death, not because God is cruel, but because he wants them to be able to be redeemed. And the reason you and I have death looming in our future is because of that same reason. And it is so that we can exercise faith on this earth. We have a very small amount of time to prepare for eternity, and then we will prepare and we will be in eternity. Eternity is a long time. It doesn't have an end. You have one shot to make your soul right with God and to be in a right relationship with him. And he has made all of the provision, just as we looked at the skins that were provided, the supernatural covering. Sin just doesn't need to be covered. It needs to be taken away. And it is covered by the blood of Jesus. It is taken away by his uh, crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, it is absolutely done away with. He is, it's not done away with now, but it will be because of those things that Christ has done. And so it's really, really incredible as we think about that. Don't think that God is cruel. Know when you read this that God is a God of mercy. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.